So shall we start? And this is the first event for this academic year, and it's fitting for that occasion that we have a very distinguished alumnus of the London School of Economics, Mr. Rajat Nag, who is managing director at the Asian Development Bank. Mr. Nag is, did his first degree in India at the Indian Institute of Technology, then went to study engineering in Saskatchewan in Canada, and then decided that he needed some training in economics, and he came to the LSE where he did MSc in economics. So then he has had a distinguished experience as the ADB staff member serving in various countries, including in Nepal. Now he holds a very senior position, so let's welcome an old alumnus. <laughs> this event is also being webcast, so I also welcome for the first time people who are watching us but are not present here. So let me turn to you. Thank you very much. <laughs> Professor Hussain, Dr. Kutumuri, distinguished members of the faculty, dear youngsters, the hope of our future, and I'm delighted that on the first week of your being here, you thought it was appropriate to spend some time here. I'm absolutely flattered. And friends who are watching us elsewhere on the webcast, ladies and gentlemen, thank you very much, uh, Professor Hussain, for this opportunity and the honor for being able to speak to you tonight. It is a particular honor for me to come back to my alma mater and be with you all. I have uh, a prepared speech, as is customary, and I understand it is available to you, and which, if my experience is any guide, you will wisely ignore. And so I thought, uh, and I have the permission of the chair for that, that instead of reading that prepared speech, I will uh, make a few observations uh, for your consideration for a discussion and debate, and uh, also leave some time for some questions and answers at the end. In many ways, um, Asia is a success story, and we can all be very proud, very justifiably proud, of our many achievements. Uh, Asians today are generally richer, healthier, better educated than they were a generation ago. And, of course, strong economic growth has benefited hundreds of millions. Just to take some numbers, in 1970, 50% uh, of the Asians were poor, and that's defined as a dollar a day. Uh, by 2005, that number had come down to... 19%. So that's quite a remarkable achievement. Half the population in 1970, one in five in 2005. Average life expectancy at birth in 1970 was a very, very scant 48 years. 
And now, in South Asia, is over 64. Uh, East Asia, of course, much higher, over 70. And Central Asia, around 65. Literacy rate was about 40% in 1970. Uh, almost universal in East Asia, over 60% in South Asia, over 65% in Central Asia. So overall, I think that's a fairly good story, fairly good story. But if I just stopped there and we all applauded ourselves and said, what a great job we have done in Asia, I would have told you only half the truth. Because the other half of the truth is that even today, about 620 million people in Asia live on less than dollar a day. 620 million is roughly about 10 times the population of UK. And about 1.6 billion people, 1.6 billion people in rural Asia are without access to improved sanitation. About 700 million people do not have access to improved drinking water. 545 million people are malnourished. 100 million children are not enrolled in primary schools. And 110 million around children under five are underweight. I want you to think a bit about this 110 million children under five underweight. Not only are they underweight and everything that goes with it, they are doomed for a generation because all the development that takes place in this first five years of life they have been deprived of. So basically, that's not a very pretty picture. And what I want to talk about really are these two faces of Asia. If you go to Asia, it depends on where you go, and we were talking about this uh, just a little while back. You can go to Delhi or Bombay or Jakarta or Beijing or Manila, and you would think, my God, this is fantastic, the glitzy towers of Mumbai or Makati. And yet next door to it, you have the world's largest slum of Dharavi, or others you would recognize the slums of Tondo. And these two faces, both are real. So the success story of Asia is real. It's not a sort of a mirage. But these two faces of Asia haunt us, or should haunt us, and certainly should haunt you. And these two faces, unfortunately, are diverging and not converging, and that's our challenge. So the issue in Asia of inequality is a very pressing one and a very real one, though I should add that in Asia, the issue of inequality is not of the rich getting richer and the poor getting poorer. In Asia, everybody is getting richer but the rich are getting richer faster than the poor are getting richer. And therefore, we have a problem of inequality. But one could say, why does that matter? I mean, so long as poor are getting richer, everybody is getting better, how does it matter? It matters because 
increases in inequality dampen the poverty-reducing impact of a given amount of growth. So the same amount of growth, which, as you all know, is really, in a sense, the best poverty reduction measure, has less impact on reducing poverty depending on the income distribution on which it operates. Let me give you some numbers. And don't worry about these numbers. The point is the conclusion I'm drawing from it. In Bangladesh, the poverty is roughly about 35%. Again, all of this is a dollar a day. Now, if the income distribution over the last 10 years in Bangladesh had not worsened, which it has, and Bangladesh still had the same economic growth, the poverty rate would have come down to 27%. In Nepal, where the poverty rate is roughly about 25%, it would have been down to 12%. In Cambodia, it's 19, would have been down to 9. In Vietnam, where it's at 11, it would come down to 5. The important thing is that growth matters, but the pace and pattern of growth is very important. Let me uh, share with you some results of some work that we did recently. If we take the benchmark growth rate of the average of the economic growth 2002 to 2006, and we assume a pro-poor distribution, and by pro-poor distribution we mean bottom 40% experience a consumption growth of above 5%, 5% above the mean. In 2005, the income distribution, sorry, the, the poverty level, which is roughly, as I said, about 18, 19%, will fall by 2020 to 1%. Remarkable achievement. So you have the same growth you have had for the last five years. Impose that on a more equal distribution, poverty rate would go down to about 1%, sorry, 2%, 2% by 2020. And the numbers, still huge, but the numbers would fall to about 78 million. Now, we did another simulation where we took a lower growth rate, where the growth rate was 40% lower than the benchmark. But more importantly, we assumed a pro-rich distribution. And in that, what I mean is the top 40% had consumption, which grew at 5% points higher than the mean growth rate. And poverty, of course, still would fall but it would fall to only about 10% by 2020, and you would have about 400 million people of extremely poor a dollar a day, and most of them in South Asia. So the conclusion is that elimination of extreme poverty in Asia by 2020 is not preordained, and that is something that we all, in our euphoria, in our obvious pride in Asia, tend to forget. We take it as an inexorable fact that because we have economic growth, poverty will be eliminated. It will, but it also depends on the growth trajectory and the income distribution pattern. So what do we do? How do we stay on a high growth trajectory and ensure pro-poor distribution? That's the key thing. Uh, let me offer a few suggestions for your consideration. Uh, these are not statements of fact. I would very much appreciate questions, challenges, debate. First, we feel 
is the importance of inclusive growth, not just growth, but inclusive growth. I, I believe very strongly that we cannot rely on growth to take care of all the ills of society. And the fallacy of the rising tide lifting all boats is that it assumes that not a single boat has a leak in the hull. And, of course, we know that that's not the case. So growth has to be inclusive. And what does that mean? What does inclusive growth mean? We take it as meaning that the government has to focus on expanding opportunities, opportunities for all while targeting social protection intervention for the chronically poor. Now, two issues come in here. One is that we have to expand opportunities for all, but inclusive growth focuses on expanding opportunities for the less well-off through the elimination of distortions caused by market failures, policy failures, institutional failures. But also, number two, that society needs to identify the chronically poor and provide social safety nets, etc., for them. Now, these definitions are difficult, uh, and therefore you can either make it very complicated or you can just make it simple. I just take less well-off being $2 per day and chronically poor being a dollar a day. Now, you know, one could argue whether that's the right measure or not, but I think for practitioners, the important thing is that those two are not probably too far off the mark. Inclusiveness requires the leveling of the playing field. And unfortunately, fields are hardly ever level. There are burrows in the fields, and we believe that the social policies of any society needs to counterbalance these disadvantages that some face as the result of circumstances beyond their control. And uh, I think it is fair to say, as the numbers I cited at the beginning, <coughs> that Asia has done very well in reducing extreme poverty over the last three decades. No question about it. But it's very important to recognize and admit that the trajectory of poverty reduction is not preordained and therefore prudent policies for growth and distribution are very important. Now I should uh, mention just for the record that when I talk about distribution uh, I'm not talking about income redistribution sharing of the pie I'm talking about equalization of opportunities and of course let the consequences from that follow I'm not talking about income redistribution measures of that nature. So that's, I think, the first challenge that Asia faces in reducing uh, poverty is to encourage inclusive growth. The second would be what we say the infrastructure deficit. Any of you, and I know many of you have been to Asia, and one thing that strikes you is the crumbling infrastructure. And our estimates are, and it's probably a conservative estimate, that Asia needs roughly about $3 trillion over the next decade for infrastructure to be just at par 
with what one would consider a developed economy. $3 trillion, $300 billion a year, a huge amount, but that's a major challenge for, for Asia. And uh, China is probably an exception in the sense that it has invested very heavily, and the results are there to see. India, on the other hand, has not invested adequately, and at the moment, the investment levels, which are roughly about 3 to 4% of GDP, even the Planning Commission recognizes this probably should be closer to 6. I personally think it needs to be closer to 12, but 12% of GDP, I mean. But the point is that one of the constraining features of Asian economic growth is infrastructure or lack of it. The third challenge that I think we have to face, first is inclusive growth, second is infrastructure deficit. Third is institutional deficit. And in the setting of a university like this, uh, where free speech is the most important, valued, cherished liberty that one can take, let me talk about corruption. I think one of the biggest challenges Asia faces is the big C word, uh, is the cancer on society, and we have to face it squarely. But I think it would also be a mistake and short-sighted if we only focused on corruption and lectured people from the hilltop and hectored people from the hilltop. I think it's very important to think of governance in a broad sense, talk about the rule of law, talk about predictability of the legal framework, talk about the judicial system, but none of this will really come to pass without societies and governments in Asia recognize and deal with the whole issue of corruption. I mean, it's a major issue. Uh, it's not the only issue, but certainly something we cannot and must not shy away from. Fourth, the environment. Again, I think it's fair to say and to admit that we have pretty well messed up the environment in Asia. And those of us who live there know it, feel it, and we feel it even more when we come to a beautiful place like London. Now, those of you who live in London may sort of think, what am I talking about? But believe me, trust me. And the intense pace of economic <laughs> development in the last few decades in Asia has come with significant environmental costs, and not the least of which, of course, is the region's growing contribution to greenhouse gas emissions and climate change. Um, in the 1970s, the developing countries of Asia accounted for less than 10% of the world's energy-related greenhouse gas emissions. Today, that figure is close to 27%. And China has now the dubious distinction of having exceeded the U.S. as the world's number one greenhouse gas emitter. By 2030... This figure of 27% now will go up to a staggering 42% of the world's greenhouse gas emissions. And it's obviously a big challenge. It's a challenge for the world. It's a challenge for Asia. And, of course, global warming and the serious detrimental effects of climate change pose a major risk for all of us and our future generations. And here I would like to... Again, just for the sake of discussion, uh, put a thought. There's a lot of debate 
on absolute versus per capita carbon footprint, absolute versus per capita greenhouse emissions. And those of us who live in Asia feel very strongly about this per capita issue. It's an understandable issue. I can understand why policymakers in Asia feel that way. But I also have to say that at the end of the day, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter whether you take it as a per capita or not. The problem is Asia contributes a huge amount of greenhouse emissions, and I think the international community has to come together. This debate about I'm polluting but not polluting as much on a per capita, which is very understandable coming from us in Asia, when the rest of the world has developed and developed at a cost, I think at the end of the day is probably not a very productive debate. But I think the Western world has to be sensitive to why Asia feels that way. And therefore, in the discussions on climate change and, and environment issues, I think there has to be a lot of wisdom on both sides. I think Asia has to recognize that arguing on a per capita basis is not enough. And I think the rest of the world feel, must feel that they might have to go more than halfway. But anyways, that's a challenge. That's a challenge for all of us. And the final suggestion I have for you is regional cooperation and integration. I believe that if Asia is to claim its place in the family of nations, it has to be more integrated. Uh, Asia's economies are increasingly vital to each other and to the world. Uh, Asia's output today roughly equals that of Europe or North America and may well become 50% larger than theirs by the year 2020 in terms of purchasing power parity. And the challenge for a prosperous and independent, interdependent, sorry, Asia is to strengthen and spread the benefits of regional cooperation while playing a substantial constructive role in global economic leadership. As Asia's economies have grown larger and more complex, they have also become more integrated through trade, direct investments, financial flows, and other forms of economic and social exchange. But Asia is still not as integrated. Asia is still not as one family as it needs to be. And I believe that regional cooperation is particularly essential when it comes to regional public goods, including epidemics, natural disasters, and environmental degradation. Eventually, and uh, I'm not sure if it will happen in my lifetime, I certainly hope it will happen in yours, that Asian economies will have a single market with common regulations, a common currency, a substantial freedom of movement for workers. But if one thing we in Asia are, we are pragmatic. And the immediate policy challenges, therefore, for us, while having a long-term vision of one Asia, requires a pragmatic, multi-track, multi-speed initiatives that will show early step-by-step -step results. And you're seeing that. You're seeing that in ASEAN. You're seeing that in greater Mekong sub-region. You're seeing that in bilateral trade and multilateral trade arrangements. 
ultimately, of course, hopefully Doha, but till that happens, the regional free trade agreements, I think all are evidence of the beginnings of a strong, prosperous, outward-looking Asian economic community. But it's very important that I make the point that we in Asia feel that it has to be open regionalism. It is not fortress Asia. We're not talking about keeping the outside world away. If there's one thing we know in Asia is how important globalization is. We have prospered because of the access to the global world. We have prospered because of trade. And I think it is very important that that open regionalism in which all can come together remains a philosophy and a value system that we cherish. It would be surprising if I said anything else uh, other than that I believe very strongly that Asia has a bright future, a very bright future, but there are major challenges to be overcome. These challenges, of course, are also opportunities, and the worst thing that we can do in Asia is to kid ourselves based on our success and bask in its glory, but to say... Yes, we have done a great job. I think the last 30 years have been a great period of success in Asia, but major challenges remain, as I mentioned. The challenges are by no means small, but if the performance of the past three decades are to be an indication, I strongly believe that Asia will be able to rise to those challenges. There are a number of policy choices, of course, which can only be made at the national level. But there is an equally pressing need to act in a cooperative and coordinated way to address these challenges, to realize the dream that we all have for the region, which is a region free of poverty. Thank you very much. Thank you very much for a splendid survey of both successes and lacks or failures in Asia. So now the floor is open for questions and comments. Okay. Good evening. My name is... Um, my name is Barbara Reichwein. I'm a recent graduate from LSE, and I'm now a contractor with the Overseas Development Institute. Um, ADB is not the only organization that has caught on to uh, proper growth activities. Um, it's proper growth is being mainstreamed, you know, with, with other donors. Uh, DFID, for example, has it uh, anchored in their strategy, the Swedish, the Germans. Um, I was wondering, who do you think in the development industry, who do you consider well aware as an actor of the pro-pro-growth challenge and of, of its need, and who do you consider well positioned, and why do you consider them champions of pro-pro-growth? Thank you. Thanks very much. Uh, I, I believe uh, ADB or DFID or World Bank or all our other development partners, we are only a player in this larger issue, and I must say, with all humility, a minor player. I think the most important thing about this pro-poor growth is that the countries themselves have adopted it. 
and I think they are the ones which matter. The successes that you see in Asia really has very little to do with people like us in the organizations such as us. I think the credit goes to the countries. They have done a great job. I think the policymakers have identified the benefits of export-oriented, growth-oriented, pro-poor strategy. And that's where I think I would like to put the emphasis. So, uh, yes, everybody has now caught on, but I don't think they've caught on as a, as a fashion. I think they've caught on because that's the only thing which works. And uh, I think uh, any other strategy would be unsuccessful. Hello, my name is George Muir. I'm a member of the public. Could you say some more, please, uh, Mr. Nag, actually about the title of the thing, of the, of, the, of the debate, which is Bridging the Gap Between High Growth and the Poor? I mean, you introduced your talk by describing the sort of the two visions you can have in if you go to uh, Mumbai or any other major Asian city. But what's, what measures are the governments of these country, countries putting in place that will bridge that gap? Not enough, I'm afraid, but I think it is also fair to say that almost all the countries in Asia recognize that one of their biggest challenges is the income inequality, the growing income inequality. Uh, excepting for Thailand and Malaysia after the financial crisis, all other countries in the region show a worsening Gini coefficient. And what I find very interesting is that it is not only between countries, but it is actually within countries that the income inequality problems are becoming acute. And India is just one example. But China, I mean, you go to rural China, the in inlet China, the income situation there, you're almost saying you're in a different country. So I think first, the, all the governments that I know uh, have recognized intranational inequality as a priority. I think, therefore, many of the policies that they are taking on, they're not redistributive policies, but even in India, and I say even in India just because I know that's slightly better, there is great emphasis on going to the Bimaru states. And there the central governments and the state governments investment program, attraction for the private sector or whatever, is driven by the fact that many people have been left behind. Now, there is an argument which I tried to refer to, is that so what if some regions are growing faster and becoming richer so long as everybody is moving up? And I think the big change that I notice in the policymakers' minds is recognizing that income distribution matters. And therefore, the initial conditions are very important. So it's not just a 1% growth, but 1% growth on what income distribution. And... I think they're on the right track. I think they have got major constraints. Uh, as I mentioned, of governance is one. Uh, corruption, obviously, is one of them. But the positive thing for me is that this issue of the gap between the rich and the poor, the social deprivation, as is typified in many of these statistics we see on the social indicators, is now at least recognized and debated. I was mentioning to Professor Sen and uh, Dr. Katamuri that Three years back, I was at a World Economic Forum in Delhi, 
And when I made these points, I was almost made to feel like, why are you being a party pooper? We thought things are going great. India shining. So what's the problem? Problem is that, yes, India is shining, but that shine is not shared and accessible to others. And that, I think, is recognized by policymakers. And therefore, that is very positive. My name is David Marsh. Um, you um, said, Mr. Nag, very... Oh, sorry. <laughs> yes, just to identify me. Uh, you said, uh, very interestingly, that as a long-term goal, maybe Asia could introduce some kind of a monetary union. Uh, just looking at it purely with your economic hat on, uh, looking at the experience of uh, EMU in Europe up to now, where there's been a bit of a mixed picture, I would say. A lot of people blame uh, monetary union for actually increasing some... Uh, inequalities in some countries because there's been quite a lot of rigidity in the economies and it hasn't really quite worked in some ways. Uh, just looking at it purely as an economic piece of analysis, would you say the experience of Europe so far has been positive or negative to this long-term aspiration that you hold out for Asia? Positive. Uh, and, and that's because, yeah, there are the downsides and... You know, if the economies are very unequal, and that's one of the problems we have in Asia, uh, there would be losers and gainers of any integration. But I would say overall the experience has been positive. And wherever we have seen regional integration, even in Asia or a sub-regional level, it has been positive. Uh, but I should hasten to add that in Asia, talking about a currency union, common market, is really very far down the road. It's just that, a long-term vision and a dream. What we are doing in Asia, as distinct from in Europe, we are actually doing it not on an institutional based, but really market-led integration. Maybe the time has come in Asia that we have to start thinking of some institutional-led integration as well. But it's really market-led integration, physical connectivity, reduce the trade barriers, getting more trade going between the countries, and all of them have been positive. So we in Asia would dearly love to be in Europe's situation. My name is Kalyan Thapa. I'm, I'm just an interested observer of Asian development. Um, I'd like to make a, a comment uh, on, on India and one of its more impoverished neighbors, and I'd, I'd uh, love to hear your, your comment on this. Now, if you take um, India, clearly the regional power, a high-growth economy, aspiring uh, superpower, and you take Nepal, impoverished, uh, emerging after 10 years of civil strife where economic growth, I think, the last, uh, in the last decade has been perhaps 2 to 3 percent at best. But on the other hand, if you look at some of the other um, indicators of um, human development, uh, take, for example, the UN um, Millennium Development Goals. You look at India and Nepal. Nepal seems to be making much more progress in attaining some of these goals, for example, child mortality, infant mortality, maternal mortality. Nepal is, in fact, almost close to attaining its goals, whereas India is lagging far behind. My, my question to you is, is this lack of political will? Surely it's not lack of resources. 
Yes, uh, some social indicators in India are actually worse than sub-Saharan Africa, and maternal mortality is one of them. I think it's probably not only a question of resources, it is a question of political will, that's one factor, but I think it will be too simplistic if I just said political will. I think the situation in India is very complex, the political structure, the economic structure, the resource base, but that's no excuse. I think what that means is that the government, both at the center and at the state, have additional responsibility to get more resource transfers to some of these places. And uh, yes, Nepal has done well on some of the social indicators. But when you've got a country of the complexity of India and the size, I think it's also important to recognize that some of them, which are basically state subjects, become much more difficult. Uh, but uh, that's a major challenge for the Indian policymakers, that you have got a very divergent India and a Bharat. And I think that is something that uh, policymakers uh, cannot and must not ignore. I feel that they recognize and they recognize the political cost of ignoring it too. And the last elections were, I think, testament to that. Sham Chaidani is my name. I work in the environmental field in India. I'm glad that you mentioned greenhouse emissions, but that is surely the environment problems as seen from the West. I would say India, from an environmental point of view, and I think the rest of the rest of Asia is not India shining, it's India destroying. The forests, which are irreplaceable with biodiversity, are being cut. Uh, our cities, one by one, are being destroyed and replaced by concrete monstrosities. Our countryside is being ravaged. Our heritage is being raped. Uh, very sadly, the World Bank very often pleads for relaxation of environmental regulations and requirements. And perhaps you might care to mention all this or the ADB to take account of all these other very major irreversible environmental issues. If the biodiverse forest is cut, you can't replace it in 10,000 years. The heritage building is gone forever. City being overbuilt, 200 years to rectify. And I would appeal to the Asian Development Bank to, re to recognize this and would be grateful for your comments. First of all, I think what you say is very true, so we recognize this as a problem. But the issue is sort of, you know, it's not an either or. I think, you know, uh, I have been through many debates in India and many other places where you basically come up with a situation that you must not build a hydropower station because of the issues that you've mentioned. So then the issue is then shall we build a coal-fired plant? Of course, you can't build a coal-fired plant because of the greenhouse gas emissions. So then should we go nuclear? Of course, horror of horrors, of course, you can't go nuclear. Then should we turn off the lights? And no, of course, you can't because then you can't have development. So my point is that we cannot take a unidimensional solution to a multidimensional problem. It's very complex, and the points you have made, I think, are very relevant, are very valid, something we all wrestle with. But I don't think the answer to that will be don't do this, because I think the question is what else would you do? Uh, therefore, the environmental guidelines, I think, must be sacrosanct. I think, you know, we certainly try not to ask for any exemptions for environmental guidelines. India actually has one of the best 
environmental guidelines. It's a question of implementation. It's the question of imposing the discipline that is needed. But I think it would be unfair of me if I took the easy way out and said, yes, that's right, therefore we shouldn't have this development or that. Uh, that would be a very easy uh, solution, excepting it doesn't work. Development is one about very complex trade-offs and something that policymakers, you and I as citizens, have to face and deal with. Good evening, sir. I'm Somya. I'm a recent graduate from LSE. Uh, sorry, I have where are you? Sorry? Where are you? Ah, oh, there you are. Okay, sorry. I have to <laughs> uh, my question is very India-specific. Uh -huh. uh, the government has just made some reservations uh, for the backward classes in educational institutions and government services. I was wondering if I could get your opinion on it, whether you term this as inclusive growth, and if it is, how far will it go in reducing inequality and poverty? And whether it's just a political gimmick uh, to uh, capture vote banks. If you could give me your opinion on that. Thank you. I think the effort is certainly inclusive. And to make it inclusive, like everything else, the devil is in the details and implementation of it. I believe that uh, it is appropriate for society to take care of and pay special attention to those who are disadvantaged. But I think we've got to be very honest about it. I'm not sure if the disadvantaged phenomenon transcends generations. So if the child of a disadvantaged parent is not disadvantaged, then I think we should find a way that society recognizes that. I think one of the issues that we have in India is that the benefits out of these affirmative actions, which I strongly support and I think makes sense, in implementation is not necessarily going to the ones who deserve it or need it, but is actually going to those who are already advantaged. And therefore, I have long a lot of questions about the implementation and the effects of those. But I have no problem at all with the principle of the reservation because that's exactly what inclusive growth is. That's exactly what filling the burrows are. Um, my name is Aisha, and I'm a third-year BSc economics student at LSE. Thank you for coming here. Uh, my question has actually two parts. First part is that in your role at the ADB, uh, could you shed some more light on how the ADB's policies are helping governments tackle the issues that you have highlighted? And also the second part, more importantly, what do you see as the role uh, is the role of the NGOs and non-state actors in um, tackling these issues and in bridging this gap, basically? Thank you. Thanks. Uh, first, we have several what we call safeguard policies, uh, be it on environment, be it on indigenous people, be it on resettlement, be it on gender, be it on governance. And these are basically policies we don't devise in isolation, but is basically devised in tandem with the countries themselves. And we impose them not because we try to be sort of, you know, dictatorial, thou shalt or thou shalt not. We find that is actually good for development. So what sometimes appears to people to be coming in the way of development, for example, fair compensation for resettlement or indigenous people making sure that your, their lifestyle, their cultures are preserved, is actually good for development. 
development cannot just be growth. Otherwise, we would just sort of build a hydropower plant here and a coal fire plant there, and that would be it. So ADB, again, I think I must emphasize ADB or any institution like us is just one player. The important thing is the countries themselves, the governments themselves. But we certainly impose or want to make sure that our policies are enforced, which are really good practices of governance in a broad sense. The role of NGOs, uh, I think, is very, very important because one of the greatest danger is to be totally isolated uh, with policymakers. And if you talk to the policymakers, no matter where it is, and the government, you would think that, you know, there's nothing wrong at all with the country. And uh, one of the greatest advantages and benefits of civil society is we get to hear the truth. Now, sometimes my friends in the NGO community can be a real pain, as I am to them and they are to me. But I think it's tremendously useful. I mean, I think we'd all be poorer if we didn't have the NGOs and civil society breathing down our necks in the ADBs or the governments. And more pesky they are, I think better served we all are, though I don't always say it to them. So my name is Amitabh Bhattacharya. I'm based in Kolkata. I'm here in LSE for a three-month course. I've been working with the pro-poor and for the poor. So my question to you is, uh, you talked about the corruption-inclusive growth. How do you rate ADB's or DFID's role in India in reducing corruption or inclusive growth while creating livelihood for the poor? <clears throat> I, again, repeating a point which I think is very important. Uh, maybe you give much more importance to ADB or DFID than I do uh, because I consider myself as one participant in this development process. Having said that, I think our role of fighting corruption or better governance is not lecturing from the hilltop. It's very easy for me to go to Calcutta and talk to Buddha De Babu and say how terrible things are. But he has to govern. He has to deliver. He has to balance all these competing interests. So what I believe very strongly is that we talk behind closed doors. We raise these issues, and I have done this with many leaders in which you have to sit across the table and tell him that his problem is not anything else but his brother-in-law who happens to be running this particular state enterprise. Uh, not an easy thing to say when you know that, you know, uh, brother-in-laws have a major role in one's lives. Uh, but I think we have influence if we use it in that sense. Lecturing uh, from the hilltop uh, may be politically appealing or even satisfying, but doesn't really work. So I think DFID, ADB, we have a very important role to bring these issues to the table, but I think it's also important we do it discreetly and not very publicly. It doesn't work. A very good evening. Thank you for such an enlightening lecture. I am here on a leadership course. Um, you know, we are talking of high growth and inclusiveness. You know, and what worries me that in spite of a high growth, the growth in agriculture is dismal. In fact, it is scary. And I would like to know why and how this can be turned around. And if there is a high growth, you know, in fact, in the services sector, there has been almost a 300% growth. So why is the manufacturing sector lagging behind and agriculture is going down? 
So what could be done to include them? Because inclusiveness, when India's population, 80% is in the rural areas, so inclusiveness would be uh, take the agriculture first and make a turnaround. I would like your views on this. Thank you. <clears throat> well, since you're in the leadership program, I'm sure you'll be in the leadership position to do these things. I can only give you some suggestions. Uh, I think, again, things are very complex. Uh, in India, compared to in China, in India, the growth came really from the service sector. And I think it would have been very difficult and actually probably unwise for Indian leadership and policymakers if they ignored that, because that is what India is very good at, ITs, technology, knowledge-based. But I think if you do not create employment, and that's something I didn't get into, though in my lecture it is there, which is talking about the demographics, whether it's a curse or a dividend, and one major issue really is creating employment, and therefore manufacturing sector is very important. But, and China did that. China's economic growth model was based on growth of manufacturing, low-cost exports, which sort of you know, created those jobs. I think not only in India, I think in many countries in Asia, and we are very much party to that blame, is I think we somehow in the strive for growth, we started to ignore agriculture. Uh, and the rural employment that it generates. And one of the things that I think we all did take our eyes off the ball, whether it was an agricultural research or adequate investments in infrastructure for the agriculture, such as irrigation or rural roads, with the result, not only did you, do you have a supply problem on agriculture, you have a major problem of not enough employment in the agriculture sector. So I think we might have to sacrifice some growth overall, uh, to be able to focus on where the rural employments will be generated. It won't be easy. It will basically mean that you will have to focus more on the agriculture hinterlands of India rather than Gurgaon, which is very tempting to do. But I think policymakers have failed to recognize that the rural development, be it in China or be it in India, is ultimately going to be the major driver for growth. And uh, the policies have to recognize that. I am Gautam from India on a course on leadership and excellence. Uh, of course, the liberalization of economies and coming of MNCs has led to high growth in economies. But have the MNCs uh, done something in uh, bridging the gap or otherwise? They have broadened the gap or they have bridged the gap, MNCs? If they have, bridged, have uh, they have helped in bridging the gap, how they have helped it in this? I strongly believe in globalization. I strongly believe in growth from whatever source is good. And I certainly don't believe that MNCs are to blame. I think it's a policymaker issue. The MNCs are not there to bridge any gap. They're, they're there to go where they'll get the greatest return on their investment. And it has been good for not just India, for anybody. So I don't think it's a question of the MNCs, unless until they're violating rules and regulations or laws, a separate thing. So the issue that you're referring to is not whether MNCs have widened the gap or bridged the gap. It's a consequence of many of the service sector growth. If the MNCs have gone into the IT sector, obviously they've given employment, which widens the gap. But the answer to that is not to somehow say the MNCs are at fault. I think the answer is to see what the government policies can be to encourage the manufacturing of the rural sector. 
please never sort of, you know, hit the <laughs> innocent bystanders in some of these issues. Issues are very, very domestic in the public sector, not in the MNCs which come and create employment, so long as obviously they are doing it within the legal framework. Thank you very much uh, for the lecture. I'm sorry if the leadership program is hogging much of this uh, audience, but I had to ask. Uh, of the many challenges that you state forward in this inclusive growth, I think one very important challenge which we need to look at is the process, the democratization process. I mean, the process of democracy needs to be wider and deeper in a country like India. And I think much of the issue would be handled from the local level where you strengthen the institution and the mechanism there. I mean, the whole role of governance that you talk about, which is a very important challenge, has to be strengthened from this bottom-to-top approach. And therefore, one element which you need to consider in this inclusive growth is this deeper and wider democratization process. Thank you. Is that a question or a statement? I certainly believe that decentralization is important. And I think getting closer to these people is always very good because they know what's good for them. But having said that, and I'm not getting into the democracy, non-democracy issue. I'm talking more about people power and getting where people know. But I think it's also very important that there be a central authority with a big picture. Uh, And I know of countries where decentralization has been good, but beyond the point, decentralization also leads to balkanization. Decentralization leads to greater corruption. So it's a balancing act again. So I don't think we should just say that deeper or broader decentralization is the answer. I think you cannot rule things from the center, but at the same time, you cannot abdicate the role of the center. So you've got to have that balancing act. So let me come to down to earth uh, over there. Yeah, go ahead, the gentleman. Hi, I'm a uh, master's student of history, um, just during this year. Um, I wonder if you could comment on the uh, political and social consequences of economic modernization. Um, I'll talk about China because that's what I, I don't really know the case of India very well. Uh, in the past 15 or 20 years, there have been uh, 100 million urban migrants to the cities in China. They're disenfranchised. Their livelihoods are based on the economic growth of the past few years. Um, If that were to end in, say, a financial meltdown or something, uh, they would not have a livelihood. And I'm not saying that that would occur, but I'm wondering if you could comment to the political ramifications of this growth. Thanks very much for raising it. It's a very important point and a very serious issue. And I think policymakers have to recognize that unbridled growth has these consequences. But that, to me, is not so much a failure of the principle as the implementation of it. As a matter of fact, I would go as far as to argue that lack of economic development probably has many more aspects of human rights violations than economic development does. But this, I'm not at all exonerating or excusing 
the 100 million urban migrants that you're talking about. But what I'm saying is that if you did not have economic growth, whether it was in China or India, the impacts of poverty would be much, much more severe. The, the, the ultimate degradation of the human condition in poverty is certainly not very pretty. So my feeling is that we have to go for economic growth. It has to be inclusive, but it also means that the policies which are implemented have to recognize some of these fundamental rights. And this is where the policies that I talked about of ADB on the social safeguards, on the environmental safeguards are very important. And there, I think one has to recognize that it is the governments, and this is the institutional deficit I'm talking about, which have to recognize it, it is not... The solution is not to say, therefore, you shouldn't have the growth or the industrialization. It's the question of whether civil society, to the extent that's possible in some countries more than others, have to make sure that you know, those are more equitable and fair. But the point you raise is a very, very important and difficult one. Uh, and there may be the countries such as India probably have an edge because the process of the political process probably enable some of these issues to surface better than in some other places. Okay, over there and then I come. You mentioned that the uh, Gini coefficient is, is showing increasing inequality across Asia. Um, and in the West, we hear so much about China and about India. I was wondering if you could offer some thoughts on inequality, poverty, and development in the rest of Asia. Uh, and what the situation is in, say, the Central Asian countries and, and other, areas, other countries in the region? Very similar, excepting for Thailand and Malaysia. Uh, Philippines, for example, increasing inequality. Uh, the issue is, I think the governments have, for a considerable amount of time in the 70s and 80s, somehow felt so long as everybody is better off, the inequalities doesn't matter. And I think what is very important is that there is now a recognition based on the work that we and others have done that inequalities matters not just as a moral sense. I mean, I'm leaving that aside for the time being. That it matters because economic growth's effect on poverty reduction is attenuated if it is operating on a more unequal distribution. And that's a major issue in Asia that I think policymakers have to recognize and work on. And that's a major change because I remember in the 70s and 80s, I had a lot of difficulty in getting anybody to focus on inequality because people thought inequality meant to fight it, you have to have income distribution and nobody wanted the sharing of the pie. What we are saying is that's not the point at all. Economic growth is the best way to reduce poverty, but the income distribution matters for the reasons that I mentioned. Wait for the microphone. Thanks. Um, you talked about the importance for Asia to be part of uh, any global talk, and I think you're right, but we sometimes got the impression in Western countries that some Asian countries like uh, China, for instance, are very suspicious, not to, be sa not to say closed, to uh, foreigners. So do you think it's true, and do you think that those countries are ready to, uh, to integrate themselves in any global scheme? 
Well, I certainly wouldn't say China or India are close to foreigners. I mean, they have made their fortunes on the basis of selling to foreigners. But at the same time, I think it's only fair to let countries make their own judgments about how they will deal with the rest of the world. I think one of the problems we have in the West is we also, and now I'm putting myself in, in the West, we also somehow feel that there is only one prism through which things will work, and that is the Western liberal democratic thoughts. Not necessarily. You and I may believe that, but that may not necessarily be what the other society wants, and I think we just have to accept and respect that. But there has to be some fundamental core human values which I think are non-negotiable across cultures and societies and civilizations. And to that extent, I think it's very appropriate that we all talk about the same sets of values. But I also feel that in the West, we make demands of societies in Asia without understanding the context in which those demands are being made. And I disagree that that's the way to go. Let me take questions there. Thank you. You've spoken about ensuring that uh, infrastructure is uh, created appropriately. Uh, you've talked about education. Uh, and you've sort of touched on health, uh, but really have not. Uh, clearly, there's been a superb increase in average uh, life expectancy in these countries. But with that will come an enormous demand for health care, which hitherto you have not required, because if you die in your late 40s, uh, most illnesses aren't going to catch you. So why is it that there are differing models in some countries, such as India, have gone for an Americanized system rather than, say, the Brazilian government, which is going to go for a public health system to copy many of the European systems? Um. I think it is ultimately a function of two uh, and sometimes contradictory demands. One is a recognition by, I think, all societies or almost all societies that access to health care, health services is almost like a fundamental right, irrespective of the affordability. But on the other hand, ultimately somebody has to pay. And I think India probably, even though there are pockets and there are states in India which don't do well, I think India probably has done much better than many of the other places in, in Asia. And I think the public sector will have to continue to play a very important role that will have to be a much larger expenditures made on health and education, certainly at the primary level. And I think there is no reason at all why you cannot have the private sector providing services of a higher end and the public sector providing some basic needs for everybody. And that's going to be a huge drag on the budget, given the life expectancy, given the improvements in the health standards. But I, quite frankly, I don't see any way out of it. And countries which have not done that ultimately end up spending more in any case. And uh, I don't think that's sort of, you know, they can, they can afford to. Philippines is one case where I was mentioning that it's a very distorted situation when you have got some of the world's best healthcare facilities which are possible, available in the Philippines, uh, including the best doctors, the best surgeons, the best caregivers. 
And yet you have got many people who just do not have access to the system and therefore depend on faith healers. And then that, that I don't think is a sustainable situation. But I didn't raise it uh, as one of the issues, but yes, you're right. This is definitely one of the most important issues. And maybe when I talked about infrastructure, I should have clarified that I am including there aspects of social infrastructure, which includes health and education, the, the physical part of it. Okay, it's time for two questions. I'll take one from here. Um, hi. Do you think um, some of these social inequalities and hierarchical expectations um, in countries, in Asian countries, especially, um, say, India and its caste system, do you think that provides a barrier to the improvement of income distribution? And if so, how, how could this like, mentality be changed? First answer is yes, I think it's a barrier to development. I think uh, inequality, uh, if it is good inequality, I'm all for it. Good inequality basically means that, you know, you do better in your exams because you have studied harder. Uh, bad inequality is inequality which happens because of circumstances beyond your control, including birth or caste or, you know, situations which has nothing to do with your innate ability. Uh, how do you get rid of it? My God, I wish I knew. But I know that this is definitely a big constraint to development in India. I think it's a big constraint to development anywhere where inequalities because of circumstances of birth or family or whatever come in the way. I still believe and I hope very much that you will see much less of inequality than I have. And I think one of the ways is education. Another is development. Just, you know, economic development is a great leveler. The IT industry in India couldn't care less whose son or daughter you are so long as you can, you know, write a program. And I think that's what will happen. Uh, there is definitely a big constraint to development because of that, but I'm also very optimistic that over time some of these will fall by the wayside as you all get into positions where you can make a difference. Right. Thank you, Mr. Nack. Thank you, Chairman. Uh, my name is Jin Yuzi. I'm a first-year uh, postgraduate in international political economy. Um, just another thought uh, on the Asian uh, single market, uh, as you just mentioned. Um, as we see the situation in Asia with uh, China predominantly still have competitive, com competitive and comparative advantages in uh, uh, low-skilled uh, goods and but shifting towards high-value-added and technology-based uh, goods. Uh, while we also see India has reaped uh, comparative advantages in, 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 in uh, service industries. And how um, pragmatic uh, um, the idea of having a single market in Asia while uh, the small nations have to compete with the two superpowers in uh, Asia which we don't see in Europe, and um, I, I, I would like you to shed more light on that. And thank you very much. <clears throat> I'm a great believer in the whole concept of the economic ladder. Uh, yes, China has comparative advantage, but by very definition, it cannot have an absolute advantage. So Cambodia, Vietnam are now producing goods and services which were once produced in China and the whole concept of the value chain added production chains works. I don't think the smaller countries 
are concerned about the big countries in an economic sense so long as they have access, so long as it's fair. And this is why I think free trade is so important. And I think the economic growth story of East Asia is based on that fact. The intra-regional trade in East Asia is now 55%, which means they trade 55% of their goods amongst themselves. A large part of it is really intermediate goods production. It's part of the production value chain. Vietnam, Cambodia, allows all beneficiaries of it. I think what we need to do is level the playing field in terms of absence of trade barriers and having an ASEAN Free Trade Association after together with China is a very positive development. I wish very much that's much more in South Asia. The intra-regional trade in South Asia, unfortunately, is less than 5% compared to 55% in East Asia. So the issue, I don't think, is a small country versus big country. It's a question of how the economic policies and the economic leveling fields are played out. And wherever it is flat and fair, the small countries have done extremely well. Uh, just have to look at Vietnam's economic growth of 10% plus in recent years because of that. Right, okay. Yeah. You wanted to ask a question, yeah. So I think that I just wanted to ask you, despite India being an IT superpower, if as a student, uh, somebody around the world has to study IT, they won't go to the IITs or the IIMs. So my question to you is, are the world-ranked university, there is a lack of good world-ranked status universities in this region, uh, is that a hindrance to the development? Can we do something to improve on that? And um, what? how can... ADB or the government policies change that? Two points. I'm not sure if people wouldn't want to go to IITs or IIMs if they could, but I know the point you're making. And that's something that I mentioned in my speech, that I think one of the biggest problems that India faces and Asia faces, that I think we have really fallen behind on higher education. Uh, IITs and IIMs are really an exception and therefore cannot be taken. And, they, and I think governments have to make some massive investments in higher education. And if you look at the history of educational development, it has had to come from massive investments from the public sector, USA being an exception where I think there's been a huge philanthropic private sector investments and endowments which have driven that. But I think... Countries like India, China, Thailand, all have a very major problem of not having enough education at that high level to be at the cutting edge. And that, I think, is a major challenge that we face in Asia. Uh, look at students here. I mean, all of you have come here because this is the best place to come. But why can't we provide a place for you in India? And till we do that, I think this is a major challenge for all of us. Again, uh, can ADB do something? Uh, probably not. I mean, again, you know, we lend $10 billion a year, which sounds huge, but it's nothing compared to the needs of the region. Uh, so I think it has to come from elsewhere. But the point you have raised is a very important one. I think the demographic bulge can easily turn to a curse in Asia, particularly in India, if we don't have higher education uh, of that 
quality. Uh, India produces roughly about 250,000 engineers a year, and this is anecdotal, but it's probably not off the mark. Only one in 20 or one in 25 are really employable by international standards. And that's a very major indictment of our education system. Right, it's time for one last question, so let me. Uh, okay, are you a leader? Okay, wait for the microphone. Uh, my name is Praveen and I work with disadvantaged communities uh, back in India and I'm also a part of the leadership program. Okay. <laughs> uh, my question uh, is, I mean, you, you talked about 620 million uh, people being uh, uh, poor in Asian countries and uh, my uh, concern particularly is uh, of disabled people uh, in that context. So uh, around roughly 10 to 15 percent of that population is, uh, are disabled. Um, the Millennium Development Goals, again, uh, the latest reports of various countries, uh, Vietma, Vietnam, including India, Nepal, uh, and African countries, also say that uh, disabled people are not recognized or not included in, in the Millennium Development Goal processes. Um, in India, again, you would have seen that uh, HIV, the, the incidence of HIV positive has been drastically brought down. It was 5.1 million last year. Now it is 2.45 million. What happened to the uh, remaining 2.45 million? So uh, in this context, I have one question. Um, how, how does ADB look at uh, issues of uh, inclusive governance vis-a-vis -vis disability, HIV, AIDS, and gender? I must confess that uh, not just in ADB, but I think in Asia as a whole, we, much to my shame, we pay very scant attention to disability. And, and that's a fact. That's not an excuse, but that's a fact. Uh, having said that, I would put the gender issue separately because that is very much a part of the mainstream issues of gender policy, gender equity. And uh, I think a lot of progress has been made, a long way to go, but it is at least recognized as an issue that you cannot marginalize 50% of the population anywhere and hope the economies will grow or the societies will grow. But let me address the issue of disability because this is something that I have wrestled with personally and I have no answer for you because it doesn't even figure in ADB's policies. Now, one can always say, well, again, you know, ADB can't do everything, therefore has not chosen to. But it is really something which those of us who live in Asia I think have to recognize as a major shortcoming of our social and political systems in which those issues are not debated or, or articulated. And again, as I said, this is to my shame. Right. I think every nice thing has to come to an end. And so let, let me call it that we should stop here and like to thank Mr. Nag for a very splendid talk. And